Hopefully you're well aware that we've been going through a study in the book of Genesis, looking at some of the main stories, and not just to review the history, but to learn lessons, lessons from the book of Genesis that will be applicable in our lives even today. Last time we were together, we looked at the story of Jacob and Jacob's troubles, most of which were self-inflicted, mind you. But the Lord worked with him, he took his time with him, and on that night of wrestling, the Lord even appeared to be his avenging enemy, yet Jacob's faith clung to him, and the Lord blessed him indeed. And what's fascinating, for a little piece of trivia there, is that before that night of wrestling, when the Lord appeared to Jacob, and to anyone, he would say, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. But after that night of wrestling, every time the Lord addresses himself, he's like, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Lord truly became Jacob's own at that time, and we saw a great change in his life, and he prevailed through faith. Now, just because you prevail by faith and you come into a new experience with God, you start all new. In fact, Jacob even got a new name, Israel. And the Lord set his seal on him, and he was enfolded him into that covenant promise That does not mean that the consequences of his previous actions didn't haunt him and follow him into his new life. And today we're going to take a look beyond Jacob's life into the lives of his children in a message entitled, The Children of Israel. And oftentimes we hear that term, the children of Israel, and I think we think corporately. We think of the nation of Israel and all the tribes assembled in their vast multitude. But before we get there, we're going to look actually at Jacob's children themselves, the actual children of Israel individually, and see what the Lord did with them as recorded in God's word. But we always must start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for so many things, but particularly thank you for that amazing grace that we just sang about. Thank you that it's offered to us even today, and that in your word you record for us your will through the lives of those who have gone before us. Help us to learn their lessons today. And through your Holy Spirit's power, Lord, make us more like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall, Jacob deceived his father and run by, won by stratagem what should have been by the Lord's leading with his birthright and inheritance. And he had to flee from his brother Esau, and that, that deception and all the train of things that followed after. You know, he, he had to flee, and he ran into Laban. That's where he met Rachel, but Rachel wasn't the one that Laban gave him. He gave him Leah, and there was this big compromise. And lo and behold, Jacob's life turned in quite a mess because of this. The action leads to another action. And by the time it was all said and done, he didn't have one wife. He didn't have two wives. He ended up with four wives in one household with some 13 children that are recorded by name. And in case you haven't kept score, here's how that shakes out. Leah was the first to bear children for Jacob. Leah had Reuben, and then Simeon, and Levi, and then Judah. Those first four children came from Leah in that order, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Then Rachel, of course, was jealous and envious and you recall of course that Rachel was the one that he loved the most and so she was envious and she perhaps taking a page from Abraham's wife Sarah offered up her maidservant this time it wasn't Hagar this time it was Bilhah to Jacob and of course Jacob being the man that he is refused to if only that were the case but from Bilhah he has Dan and Naphtali 
Well, apparently Leah thought, well, two can play at this maidservant game. And she counters that Bilhah. She's like, I'll see you your Bilhah and raise you a Zilpah. To which Jacob consents again, bearing two more sons, Gad and Asher, numbers seven and eight. Well, apparently Leah at this point comes back in herself in the game and she conceives three more times. Issachar, Zebulon, and the daughter, Dinah. And finally, Rachel, the one he had served the longest for and had wanted forever and was the most loved, his most prized wife, as you shall only have only one wife, but finally she conceives and bears Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin, who would, of course, come later on her deathbed as she's giving birth. Benjamin is born. And that, though Jacob himself gets into right relation with the Lord, he's got a mess at home to deal with. And you can imagine the character of the young people that would come out of that situation. Well, you don't even have to imagine. The Bible actually records. And one of the most beautiful things about Scripture is it doesn't just skip over the unsavory parts. You know, there's always the black sheep of the family that nobody really talks about. The Lord puts on full display the black sheep in his family. And we go to Genesis chapter 34. We're going to start our study there here. Genesis chapter 34, when these children have been born, at least all of them except for Benjamin so far, apparently. It records what my Bible simply has the heading of as the Dinah Incident. Okay, Now, we're going to look at several different stories today. We're not going to take the time to exhaustively read each one, but enough sampling of each to see the character of the individuals involved. Genesis chapter 34 begins, as they all do, with verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, associating with the locals was not something that people were supposed to be doing in the household, even in familiar situations, but especially not in intimate situations. But notice what happens. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Now, there is a great discussion to be had about whether this was mutual in their affections, but it does not seem that it's a random violent act. As we keep reading, it says in verse 3, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young woman as a wife. He was quite taken with her. But they had violated the the covenant relationship that she was supposed to have with her God and This did not go well. Verse 5 says, And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Now, we'll pause right here for a second. They are upset at what has occurred, rightly so, for doing a thing which ought not be done. And if the story stopped right there, you would think these were very righteous gentlemen who had a very high standard for moral living. Except we see in their lives very similar behavior. In fact, as the story unfolds, we read what they did in response. 
But Hagar, verse 8, spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Marriage is plural now. Let's just not just have this one. Let's make the whole arrangement. Let's let everybody choose whom they will marry. Let's intermarry between the two groups and give us your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. And as the story unfolds, you find out that Two of the children of Israel in particular, Reuben, I'm sorry, uh, Simeon and Levi, decide to take their anger, and instead of letting vengeance be the Lord's, they take it into their own hands. And they don't just get even, they go above and beyond the call of justice. In fact, what they do is hatch a scheme, they keep it from their father. And they strike a deal with this group of people, and they say, well, we can't, of course, intermarry with you. You're unlike us. We need to come into covenant relation. In so doing, you must be circumcised as we are. And believe it or not, this man and his father both agree to the terms, and they do the same thing for all the men of the city. They get all the men together, say, this is the commitment, this is the deal we have to make. And so every one of those men goes and has themselves circumcised together. But this was only laying a snare. As the Bible records that on the third day, while they were still in pain, which I can only imagine, they're not up to active duty and certainly not in fighting shape, that Simeon and Levi take swords and go kill Shechem and Hamar and all the other men of the city in one day. Whenever Jacob, their father, found out about what they had done, he was aghast. He was shocked. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 204, says, The treacherous cruelty of Simeon and Levi was not unprovoked, yet in their course towards the Shechemites they committed a grievous sin. They had carefully concealed from Jacob their intentions, and the tidings of their revenge filled him with horror. How in the world could sons of mine have done something like that? Of course, Genesis 34 is followed naturally by Genesis 35. And if you turn the page, you see that apparently the Lord sees and Jacob himself realizes that there needs to be a revival and reformation in his household. There needs to be a spiritual recommitment, a renewal of the religious life. And it says in chapter 35 and verse 1, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, whom appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And you you recall what happened when Jacob was fleeing from Esau. He laid down that night after two days' journey, and he put a stone under his head as as a pillow, and the Lord gave him a vision. And what was the vision of? It was a ladder, right, that angels were going up and down upon. And the ladder represented what? Or more particularly, whom? Jesus Christ. He showed Jacob that he needed a savior, and he said, you need to go back to that place. Take now your household with you. You need to have the same experience again. Renew your faith. Start all over. And it seems like all goes well. Look at verse 2. And Jacob told his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Notice apparently what had come into the household as well through these interactions and associations. Foreign gods. He said, put them away. And purify yourselves. Change your garments. Apparently there was some dress reform that was needed in those days too. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. 
So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the Teberinth tree which was by Shechem. It seems all is well. Perhaps the, and as you read there, they do that very thing. They offer sacrifices and seems things going well. Things seem to be going well. In the middle of, Je- of Genesis 35, we, we read the story of the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. And then in one small verse is recorded one of the most grievous sins of the lot. And this time it wasn't Simeon, it wasn't Levi. It was the oldest son, Reuben. Look at 35, verse 22. Genesis 35, 22. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. Apparently he was quite taken aback at this behavior, much like the Simeon and Levi. It's only one verse that mentions this in the Bible. And in one sentence in the spirit of prophecy refers to this at all. You can find that on page 206 in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. On the way to Ephrath, another dark crime stained the family of Jacob, causing Reuben, the firstborn son, to be denied the privileges and honors of the birthright. Just like before, and Jacob heard about it. What in the world is going on in my own house? He's recall, of course, Jacob had, like his grandfather Abraham, grown through difficulties, often self-inflicted, into a man of genuine faith. Yet while his sins had been forgiven, the consequences of those sins made his life particularly difficult. Further on, page 208, we read, The sin of Jacob and the train of events to which it led. Of course, we were talking about the deception originally, then the flight to Laban and the Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah and all the different issues that go along with all of that. The whole train of events had not failed to exert an evil influence. An influence that revealed its bitter fruit in the character and life of his sons. As these sons arrived at manhood, they developed serious faults. The results of polygamy were manifest in the household. Can you imagine what it would be like to have four mothers in one household, 13 kids scattered between them, one mother your father loves more, one child your father loves more, now two, now that Rachel has died, you have the two that he loves the most, affection showing, then all this misbehavior and misdeed. This terrible evil tends to dry up the very springs of love and its influence weakens the most sacred ties. The jealousy of the several mothers had embittered the family relation. The children had grown up contentious and impatient of control and the father's life was darkened with anxiety and grief. Now all of this helps set up what we're more familiar with in Genesis chapter 37. So if you would please turn to Genesis chapter 37. And again, we'll begin with verse 1. We're getting into more familiar territory, but sometimes we skip right to 37 and don't give the context of the events that had gone before it. And it helps us to see a deeper and broader understanding. 
Genesis 37, verse 1 says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. Now notice carefully who he's with. And the lad was with the sons of, and it doesn't mention Rachel, of course, because he and Benjamin are the only two there. And it doesn't mention Leah, which would be Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So they're not there. The ones that he's with in this occasion are the sons of Zilpah, uh, uh, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, you go back to our little lesson there. We find out that who these four children are are Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So, so far, there's a bad report against them, and I'm guessing it was well-earned. So you have specific problems with Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. Dinah also got in some trouble, too, with that whole incident, of course. So all the children so far have been mentioned. The children of Israel are doing bad things, demonstrating faulty character. Joseph, on the other hand, now we're very familiar with the story of Joseph. He was a young man of upright character. And when he saw something that transgressed the law of God or would grieve his father's heart, he had no problem in saying, hey, that's wrong. And not only saying it to them or not only thinking it in his heart, but he went and told his father. Now, already Jacob had liked Rachel more than the other wives. And watch what he now does. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors, a physical representation, an outward representation of the inward love that he has for him. So he loved the mom more than the other moms. He loved his son more than the other sons. He gives them a coat of many colors and he's a tattletale. They do not like him is an understatement. Watch this now. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So that initial hatred manifests itself in um, being just really grumbly, mumbly-mouthed meanies, if you will. They can't say a nice word to him. Hi, guys, how you doing? Nothing comes out right. But it gets worse. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. Now look at these words. And he told it to his brothers. Be honest with you, not sure that was the wisest course. In fact, if you want to read, I would urge you, go ahead and read those pages in the Spirit of Prophecy and Patriarchs and Prophets. This is why it talks about Joseph was a petted young man. He was cared for. He lived, in, he lived in a little bubble. He was quite naive. Didn't quite realize the hatred that this engendered and had never really had to fend for himself and had always been under his father's protection. And So he said, I've had this dream and I'm going to tell my brothers. So he said to them, verse 6, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, there we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that silly? And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Notice they hated him 
even more than I already did for two reasons. His dreams and also for what? His words. Not just for having the dream, but for telling them. Apparently the way he told them, it really rubbed them wrong. Verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. And said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. It's just like that first one. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down to bow down to the earth before you? By the way, Spirit of Prophecy gives a little added insight there. He was a little bit put off by the dream, but he kind of liked it. He was like, yeah, I mean, what kind of crazy dream is that? But secretly he's like, I really hope that comes true. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Hmm. Now you understand that story unfolds, and again, we don't have time to read every word of it, but please go home and study it out for yourselves. But as, as the brothers are sent away to go take care of the sheep, and we find out that that's actually about a good 60, 65 miles away from home, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. He knows that he's going to be objective in his reporting. He's already given bad reports to them before. But look at verse 18. Well, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They hated him, they hated him more, hated him even more, and now they conspire to kill. By the way, have they ever conspired to kill before this? Absolutely they have. They've had practice at this. Then they said to one another, Look, here the dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Now that little spiteful little line, We shall see what will become of his dreams, is actually quite ironic because they will see what will become of his dreams, and by their very actions they put Joseph in the place where those dreams will someday be fulfilled. They don't know that yet. But God has a marvelous way of bringing good out of evil. He has a marvelous way of working things around so that his will is accomplished. It's fascinating. But now look now at verse 21. We start to see glimmers of hope. A small, fainting little glint of hope. But Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Which you think, oh good, Reuben is being a good guy. He's saying don't kill him. But you've got to understand how low the moral bar has been set. When the good guy in the story, all he does is say, let's not kill our brother. Like, that's a really great gesture to not kill him. Goes on to say, and Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So he secretly wanted to just, let's just throw him in the pit and teach him a lesson, wink, wink, but then he's going to come and get him out of the thing, take him back home and take care of him. But he doesn't have the courage to do this openly. He has to scheme his way out of this too and leaves him in the pits. By the way, so far Judah hasn't been mentioned, but that's all about to change. Verse 25, and as they sat down to eat a meal... Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of whom? Now, just out of curiosity, who are they the descendants of? Ishmael. They are the descendants of Abraham's lack of faith, right? With Hagar, 
It's amazing, the tangled web we weave. Coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, let's send Joseph back home. Yeah, that's not my version has that either. Judah said to his brothers, what, and what's that next word? Prophet is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood. Does he have any problem killing him? Nope. But he says, look, if all we're going to do is kill him, then what do we get? Just a dead brother. But let's keep him alive and use him. Let's sell him for money. Come, he says in verse 27, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And then notice how pious this sounds. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. He dresses it in a cloak of spiritual, like, oh, we don't want to be those guys who kill our brother. Let's sell him. Because at least in the pit, he'd be dead. But in Egypt, slavery was a thing to be feared worse than death. But they're going to profit off of his back, literally. And sure enough, And his brothers listened, it said. In verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And of course, how did they cover it? Verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father. And notice how they word this question. We have found this. By the way, do they think their father is going to recognize this special coat? Of course, they hated this coat and all that it represented. They hated their father for doing it. They brought that coat. They, I would imagine, enjoyed tearing it up, dipped it in false blood, right? Took it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Notice it's not our brother's but your sons. And he recognized and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Now look at the verse 36, how this chapter concludes. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So it introduces us, and what's the very next thing you would expect to read about? Joseph's experience in Egypt in the household of Potiphar. Now, put your finger there and skip over to Genesis 39 and verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And there it tells the story of Joseph in Egypt in Potiphar's household. So 37 ends with the introduction to Potiphar's house, and then 39 picks up the baton where 37 left off. So a question should be sitting in your mind. What went on in chapter 38? Why would you get us started in the Joseph story, introduce us to this new chapter in his life, and then pause er, 
And inside of a big set of parentheses, tell us a whole other story and then pick up the story again of Joseph in chapter 39. What is in chapter 38 and what in the world is it doing right there in the Bible? A lot of people have trouble with this, but I believe it plays a very critical role in the storyline itself. In Genesis chapter 38, it tells the story of Judah and Tamar. And again, we don't have the time to go to every verse by verse, but we'll give you the overview. Just as the Bible introduces the story of Joseph, it pauses for one chapter to give us some insight into the life of Judah. In verse 2, it tells us that Judah marries a Canaanite. And remember, they were so abhorrent that Dinah had gone with those other people, but here Judah is, the Canaanite woman. You can read between the lines in verses 3 through 5 and see that Judah is not a good father to the children that came from this marriage. The first one he names, the second one she names, and the third one she names, and he's not even there. He's an absentee father. Verses 6 and 7 tell us the character of these children that were born from this relationship. Judah's firstborn son, named Er, was so wicked that for the very first time in recorded history, God specifically executes one person. And that's this individual, Er, Judah's son with the Canaanite woman. Now, of course, you recall in those days there was a tradition. Er had married this lady named Tamar. And there was, a, there was a cultural tradition that if the husband of a wife who then dies and she becomes a widow, if they had no children, there was no firstborn son to pass on that family line and the inheritance and all the wealth that goes with it, then the second son, if he is still single, is bound to marry her and produce an offspring that will carry on the first son's line and be the inheritor. The second brother was named Onan. He had this responsibility to be honorable and build up that family. But you can read in verses 8 through 10 how he dishonored that covenant relationship and didn't do what he was supposed to do and merely used Tamar as a tool. And for that, we have the second recorded incidence where God directly executes an individual, Er's brother, Onan. So now she's out two husbands and has no children. The third son is not old enough yet to fulfill those claims, so she's supposed to wait. And when he comes of age, he'll be next. But Judah is off doing other things, doesn't pay attention. His oldest son, I mean his youngest son comes of age and he does not give him to her in marriage. And she gets frustrated and takes things into her own hands. And what she does is this. She dresses up like a prostitute and goes to where Judah was, somehow knowing Judah would be interested in such an option. And sure enough, Judah solicits her services, not knowing it is his daughter-in-law. And she conceives by Judah. Interesting, apparently he had no payment on hand and had to leave a little something, a little collateral with Tamar. And he says, what do you need? And she says, your staff, your signet ring, your identification. Basically, leave me your driver's license. And he does. 
She conceives, gets out of there with his driver's license hand, goes home, takes off the prostitute garment, and all of a sudden she's Tamar again, but as the months go by, she's Tamar with child. And the word gets out, ah, she's pregnant by harlotry. She's not married. She has done this outside of, she must be punished. Judah hears about it and is indignant. How could this woman have done this thing? So he calls her out to burn her. And she wisely says, now before we get this fire going, would you like me to share with you who's the father of this child? Well, yes, absolutely. Bring forth your evidence. And she pulls out Judah's driver's license. And apparently it is that in the life of Judah that this was a turning point. Notice what happens in chapter 38, verse 25. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I. The very one I was going to kill for their unrighteousness, I am more guilty. And it dawns on him. What happened? Now, then the story picks up Joseph's story. Back in chapter 39. What in the world is Genesis 38 doing in there? Why does it tell us this horrible type of story about Judah when all we really want to know about is Joseph, right? Oftentimes we say, you know, Joseph had these brothers and they were really bad and then Joseph went to Jesus and we just follow Joseph's story. But what about these other brothers? Judah gives us an interesting bookmark. Now, we're not going to cover the story of Joseph because we're very familiar with it. Joseph goes down there, and he has some difficult times, but through the grace of God and the opportunities afforded to him, he becomes very high in the land, becomes ruler over all Egypt, saves them from this terrible famine, the very famine which drives his brothers down into Egypt at a much later date to have to come and buy bread from him. So there he is, king, if you will, of the corn, you know, the sheriff of the sheaf, And they come to him for grain. And his sheaf is standing up while theirs bows down before him. And he recognizes this is the dream come true. They don't know him, but he knows them. And Joseph uses this not as an opportunity to say, Hey guys, it's me. He's a much wiser man by now. And what he does is tests their character. Fascinating enough. Genesis chapter 42. So we skip over there several chapters. Much time passes at this point. They've all grown and have changed. And the question is, have they changed for the better? They said... Let's go to verse 8. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. Now notice carefully. We are all one man's sons. We are what? Honest men. Last time Joseph knew them, were they honest men? Absolutely not. And he says, They don't know that I'm Joseph. They just think I'm... 
Let's test their character, their credibility here. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. So he plays this out. And he wants to test their honesty. Look at verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for, famine, uh, for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. You say you have a younger brother, huh? Bring him here and I'll believe you. Now, he wants to see his younger brother, does he not? Sure. But he also wants to character, see the character of his older brothers. And he makes this elaborate scheme out to test their character. Look at verse 22. It doesn't say, and one of them answers, it says, and Reuben answered then, saying, did I not speak to you, saying, this is with the brothers now? In fact, let's back up. Verse 21, I'm sorry. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. They don't know the brothers in the room, but they know that this is starting to come back on them. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They recognize their sin. They see that this is just and fair what's happening to them. And they feel that they're facing judgment. Verse 22, And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. It's a fascinating story. Commenting on this reflective change of heart that these gentlemen have gone through. We read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 225. During the years since Joseph had been separated from his brothers, these sons of Jacob had changed in character. Envious, turbulent, deceptive, cruel, and revengeful they had been. But now, when tested by adversity, they were shown to be unselfish, true to one another, devoted to their father, and themselves middle-aged men subject to his authority. In chapter 43, Judah offers to take personal responsibility for Benjamin's safety as they're pleading with their father to let Benjamin go with them. And finally, in chapter 44, Judah offers himself as a living sacrifice in the place of Benjamin out of love for his father. When he realizes, remember how the, they put this, the cup in Benjamin's sack to see if anyone would stand in the place of Benjamin and stand up for him? And who was it that comes around full circle? It's Judah. The very one who had come up with the idea to sell Joseph, the very one who had had the Tamar incident, now says, let me stand in his place. I will take a life of slavery if only Benjamin can go free and my father can be at peace. And this was the time when Joseph realized they have actually changed. Patriots and Prophets 230 and 231, Joseph was satisfied. You think about it. Just as God had tested Jacob's character in the night of wrestling, Joseph has now tested his brother's character through this elaborate scheme. But now, when he sees what Judah does, 
Joseph is satisfied. He had seen in his brothers the fruits of true repentance. Notice, by the way, that repentance is not just claiming to be honest men and claiming to be good and claiming to be part of the... No, 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 no. I need to see it in the life. And he sees it and he's satisfied. Upon hearing Judah's noble offer, he gave orders that all these men should withdraw. Then weeping aloud, he cried, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? His brothers stood motionless, dumb with fear and amazement. I had to wonder. I wonder if they were more shocked or more scared. Like, hey, it's Joseph. Oh, it's Joseph. Things just got awkward, right? The ruler of Egypt, their brother Joseph, whom they had envied and would have murdered and finally sold as a slave. All their ill treatment of him passed before them. Do you think that Joseph had to go down and say, do you remember the time that you did this and you did this? No, 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 no. Their conscience is doing it. The Holy Spirit is moving on. They become very aware of all the shortcomings of their character in a moment of time. You know, I used to think of that about the day of final judgment. Are we going to have to stand there while every single person reviews every little thing in their life? Or is it possible that as we stand before Jesus, we will become aware in a moment, as it were, of every opportunity spurned, every decision we made, every choice that went the wrong way. And we'll realize that what is about to happen is just and fair. Apparently that's what happened here. All their ill treatment of him passed before them. They remembered how they had despised his dreams and had labored to prevent their fulfillment. Yet they had acted their part in fulfilling these dreams. And now that they were completely in his power, he would no doubt avenge the wrong that he had suffered. Now remember, Jacob had been running and had been fearful and God came to him as an avenging enemy to wrestle with him. And it felt in that moment that God would have executed him and it would have been just, but God was merciful. And here Joseph stands in the place, if you will, of God to these brothers, these sons of Jacob. And he has the power to execute them on the spot for the wrongs that they have done. And he would have, in a legal sense, been justified in so doing. But it goes on to say, they humbly confessed their sin and entreated his forgiveness. They had long suffered anxiety and remorse. And now they rejoiced that he was still alive. Apparently they were just thrilled with the opportunity to say, I'm sorry. And Joseph, who could have crushed them, embraces them, forgives them, and brings them into the best of the land of Egypt. You may be wondering, what in the world did our scripture reading in Revelation 21 have anything to do with the stories we've just read? Well, let's go there. Revelation chapter 21. When the Apostle John is shown a picture of the new Jerusalem, the holy city where the saints will dwell, the redeemed from the earth will have their habitation. It says in Revelation chapter 21, starting with verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. 
Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper, clear as crystal. By the way, this city apparently has the glory of God, and throughout the scripture, the glory of God is the character of God dwells therein. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates. So there's 12 ways to get into this city, 12 gates, and 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And I know we just kind of, yep, the twelve tribes will each have the gate, but do you realize that those names that are emblazoned on those gates are the names of these scoundrel young men, these abysmal, awful, horrible, scheming, violent, cruel, treacherous people are going to have their names emblazoned on the gates of heaven. Why on earth is that the case? By the way, the foundations have 12 names on them too. Do you recall what they are? The 12 apostles, right? James and John, the sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire on those who disrespected Jesus. Peter, who denied his Lord with cursings. He has a foundation. So you're walking up the steps of Peter, James, and John and going through the gate of Simeon, Levi, and Judah. What in the world is the Lord trying to teach us about the kingdom of God? Friends, anyone that enters into heaven has to go through the gates of one of these individuals. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we're going to get in, we get in the same way they do. Every one of us has to have that experience where we realize our sinfulness, our need of a Savior, and in true confession and repentance, turn our heart back to God. And He has not only the forgiveness to call us good, but the power to make us into the people we need to be to be good citizens of that kingdom. Everyone goes into the holy city, will have at some point in their lives the experience that Jacob and Abraham, and the children of Israel have had. We may think that we are so much better than those children of Israel, but in reality, everyone who overcomes will have gone through a similar experience. God's grace doesn't merely pardon sins, but it also empowers sinners to become overcomers. And someday when we go through those gates of the city, we're going to pass under those names And we'll think back on the stories that God included in his word. Aren't you so glad that the Lord talks about the black sheep and his family? Wouldn't it be awful if everyone ever mentioned, never had a shortcoming, never had a problem, never had a trial, never was stupid. But no, 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 I look at that and I see great hope. If he can do that for Simeon, (laughs) surely he can do something for me. If he can do it for Levi... And turn Judah into the line that brings forth Jesus. What can he do with me? Friends, these stories aren't just history. They're a record of God's grace and his mercy and how he works with people. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's gracious. And if we understand this, it is our great opportunity to take him up on that grace and not just say, Lord, I want to be pardoned to keep living. No, no, I want pardon and power. Lord, I want to go through the gates of that city and it's only going to be by your grace alone. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.